This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Good morning, everyone. RSO podcast coming at you on a beautiful sunny morning here in Idaho. You may be listening to this in the evening or the afternoon, but by golly, if you were here right now, you would love it. Say we have a special guest today who has shot some really big guns. I mean, most of us think we're doing pretty well if we shoot a 375 H and H or a 458 lot or maybe a 505 Gibbs. <laughs> but the gentleman we are going to interview today has shot some cartridges that are dwarfing those. And I think he probably shot a 105 millimeter gun once or twice. I might be wrong on that. But he's probably better known for scout rifles and for handguns. And he really knows how to handle those because this man operated in the military and in a police capacity with a railroad, I believe. But we'll find out all about it when we introduce our now guest. One of the best gun writers in the country. I've known this gentleman since he started as a writer after his career with the police and military. And he was, I got to tell you, this guy struck me as a little bit funny when I first met him because he was Mr. Enthusiasm, but he was asking me all of these questions about writing and such. And I just couldn't quite understand why, because he, he sort of built himself as a dumb hillbilly from back in West Virginia, but he's anything but a dumb hillbilly. He is a hillbilly, but he's not dumb. And the man's writing skills really developed over the years. So he must apply himself appropriately, and he is a real hard worker. So he not only knows all about guns and shooting and and hunting, because he's a hillbilly growing up in the hills of West Virginia, but he's just a heck of a nice guy, and he's one inspiring gun writer. And we're going to meet him today. His name is Richard Mann, and I'm going to let him Tell us a little more about himself and what I might have gotten wrong on that introduction. Richard, welcome to the RSO Podcast. Thanks for being with us. How close did I come to describing you? 
I think you got most of it right. You might have underbilled me just a little bit. <laughs> I forgot to mention he was also pretty arrogant. <laughs> but the other thing that you said is how my writing has progressed. I guess you were also saying that when I started, I sucked. Well, that's a polite way of saying that roundabout. Yeah. Yes, you were not much when you started, but oh my gosh, you, your style these days is impeccable. I just love it. Who are you writing for? Um, I've been writing the ammo column for Shooting Illustrated since 2006, I think. Um, and I still write for that magazine. That's the long, I've been writing for that magazine longer than any of the other magazines. But I also write for Gun Digest. I'm a handgun, defensive handgun editor for Gun Digest, the shooting editor for Game and Fish magazine. And the shooting editor for Field and Stream magazine. Yeah, I've been seeing your stuff on Field and Stream a lot, and that's where I've really been impressed with your style. I just love the way you put things together, and you just have a knack for for making things real and relatable, which is not a lot of guys do that. So congratulations on that. Well, I've been fortunate to your editors too. Oh yeah, that always helps. Not a lot of great editors around anymore either, but when you get a good one, boy, it sure helps. Yeah. yeah. So I remember I met you in Nevada on a hunt. Does that sound right? No, it was Texas. Texas, huh? Okay. Seven hundred Springs Ranch. <laughs> you remember that? No, I kind of remember it, Richard, but there's just been too much water under the bridge in my life, you know what I mean? We were hunting... Axis Deer with a, a company that called Adirondack Optics. Oh, yes. You remember yes. that? I do remember that, Richard. You remember the chickens? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting little hunt down there. We've been on a lot of interesting hunts over the years, but the, the most recent one was in Africa. Uh, this, like I say, Richard's the real deal. He's not just a hillbilly from West Virginia. He's hunted all over. But Richard, do you consider yourself more of a hunter or more of a gun guy? I don't know. I, I think both of those things have varying definitions. I, the, I guess one of the most unique things about my hunting career is I actually was hunting before I was born. And what? a lot of people can't understand that. But my mother and father were big hunters. And uh, specifically hound, hound, how you guess you'd call them houndsmen. Uh, they raised coon dogs. And they loved coon hunt with the hound dogs. And I was born. <clears throat> I was born in January, and the fall before that January, my mom was out hunting while she was pregnant with me. So I don't, I don't know if you're much of a hound person or a dog person, but a lot of uh, even people that run bird dogs, they want to mark their pups. And to mark a pup, if you're a coon hunter, you get the the female that's pregnant with the pups to tree a coon while she's pregnant. And that marks the pups. Same thing marks with a bird them. dog. If you get a bird dog to point while she's pregnant, then the pups she has are marked. So I was kind of marked from birth to be a hunter. <laughs> I love it. Seems to have taken. Yeah. That, so when I started this, I mentioned that you were shooting some really big guns. Could you explain to the audience what big 105 millimeter gun I am speaking of? Yeah. When I, when I got out of high school, my original plan was to 
I was going to go to college and become a game warden. And I had an opportunity to go to work for the local board of education as a design draftsman. I designed additions for school buildings and stuff like that. And uh, my dad had been in the military. Um, I'd even toyed with the, the possibility of going to West Point, but couldn't make it happen. I got a real good job out of high school, so I decided to join the National Guard, which was an armored cav unit at our, our local National Guard unit. And they had, at that time, they had M60 tanks. But eventually we transitioned to M1 tanks, and the early M1 tanks had a 105-millimeter main gun. So I was a gunner in an M1 tank for a long time and then ended up being a tank commander and a armor instructor for the National Guard on the M1 tank. So, yeah, I've shot some pretty big guns. A little bit of recoil on that one, huh? Yeah, yeah. The noise is, is the worst <laughs> part. I think that's why I came here now. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine. Even with, what, double ear protection, you're probably just taking all that sound in through your bones, huh? Well, I think the most interesting thing about it, when you're inside the tank, it's not that loud. Um, it's when you're really? outside. The tank that it, yeah. yeah. When you're inside the tank, you don't really, I mean, it's loud, but it's not as loud as shooting a thirty out 6 without ear protection. Hmm. Uh, now, if you're standing wow. on the outside of the tank, it's a different story. Okay, so you got out of the military, and then what was your police training and experience? Um, I was on active duty in uh, Boise, Idaho, at Gowan Field. It was an armor. It's where the the military trained active duty uh, Marines and Army soldiers to transition from the M60 tank to the M1 tank. And when I left there, I went home and got a job as a correctional officer in a jail. And then I got hired as a city police officer, and I did that for about six years. And then I transitioned to the railroad police as a special agent. A lot of people don't understand about the railroad police. It's it's a unique. It's the only private police force in the United States. Uh, they have a federal commission on railroad property throughout the United States. But the unique thing about the railroad police that's carried over from back in the old West days is you know like out in uh, Kansas or wherever, if they were having railroad issues, somebody was stealing stuff off the rail cars or tearing up the tracks, they would hire a railroad detective and then they would send him to that county or that state and that state or county would give him powers of arrest. So essentially, the railroad detective would get commissions wherever he was working at. So that was kind of the unusual thing with the railroad police. I had a commission in a bunch of different counties in West Virginia and in Virginia, and uh, so it's a little odd. You know, it's not exactly like you're you're paid privately, but you have powers of arrest in certain locations. Uh, for example, yeah, that is different. When uh, they had the uh, Katrina hit New Orleans, uh, right. we had a we had a big rail yard down there, and for the first couple of days, the railroad police were the only active law enforcement agency really working in new Orleans. And I ended up spending, I think it was about 16 days down there after that happened. Wow. So I'm guessing this is where you really got your handgun training or your interest in handguns. Yeah. I mean, I've always, I always had an interest in handguns before I was old enough to buy one. My mom bought me a model 66 Smith and Wesson. Uh, and I, and I shot them and I had 1911s and a bunch of different guns, but I didn't learn to shoot a handgun really well until I became a police officer. 
But I know these days you seem to be going to a lot of these training schools. Are you a, an instructor at some of these handgun training schools? No, I don't do any instruction anymore. I, I used to do some locally. And, um, well, I take that back. A couple of years ago, I put a, a training class together for Steyr on the scout rifle, and I helped with that. And then I helped Gunsight develop the laser training, uh, handgun training class that uh, they offer now for laser sights. But mm-hmm. I don't. If I'm going to be on a range, I want. I want to be shooting. I don't want to be watching somebody else. <laughs> oh, you selfish devil, you! <laughs> well, well, that's all right. Now you mentioned that scout rifle, the Steyr. I have hunted with one of those. I think for a lot of our listeners, scout rifles are a little bit unknown. What exactly is the definition of a scout rifle? Ron, I don't think you have any idea how big of a can of worms you just opened up. When when you ask Uh-oh. what the definition of a scout rifle is. The so just a little <laughs> oh, back. No. Um Jeff Cooper, former Marine, uh started Gunsight Academy, wrote for Guns and Ammo, gunwriter for years, uh responsible for giving us the firearm safety rules, uh color code. I mean, the the amount of things that Jeff Cooper's contributed to the world of firearms is is not only endless, it's iconic. Um, he had been working with a Remington Model 600 and 308 Winchester. You remember those little short, lightweight? Oh, yeah. Had the, yep. what they call the dog leg bolt. Shark's tooth. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> He'd been working with one of those for a while and was really pleased with how quick it handled, how light it was to carry, uh, the amount of power you got out of the 308 cartridge given the weight of the gun. And he installed right. a long eye relief scope on it, which was mounted forward of the action. And mm-hmm. in 1983, he wrote an article for Gun Digest Annual uh, about and kind of introduced his scout rifle concept to the world. Um, he defined what the scout rifle was. Uh, and I can, I mean, I'll break it down to some of the categories. He wanted it to weigh three kilos, which is 6.6 pounds. Uh, he wanted it to be less than a meter long. He wanted, uh, he didn't specifically say bolt action, but given that weight and length measurement at the time, a bolt action was the only thing that you could get there with. He wanted a 308 Winchester yeah. because it matched the original 30 out six ballistics of a 150 grain bullet at 2,700 feet per second. And, uh, like he said, Stuart Edward White and Theodore Roosevelt had used that all over the world successfully, Africa and whatever. Uh, he wanted two right. minutes angle of accuracy. In other words, he wanted to be able to shoot two-inch groups or less at 100 yards, 19-inch barrel. The reason he specified the 19-inch barrel is because in a 308 Winchester, you needed that 19-inch barrel to get that 2,700 feet per second with a 150-grain bullet. Uh, Non-reflective finish, ghost ring, backup sights. And that was kind of where the forward-mounted scope come in. You know, if you put a set of ghost ring sights on a bolt-action rifle, and then you try to mount a scope, you either have to mount it really high or just a little bit forward, right. or you got to take the sights off. So with his ghost ring sights and the intermediate eye relief scope, you got the best of both worlds. Pop the scope off, you got backup iron sights. Um, and then a couple other things that he considered accessories or optional was a the flush uh, sling swivels so they didn't protrude out and hit your hand 
a magazine cut off so you could feed one round at a time over top of loaded rounds and a bipod and the ability to store ammo in the gun. Um, now, if you'll let me just keep going a little bit, those specifications are darn near impossible to make. It is, I mean, to find a six pound or six and a half pound rifle with a scope attached to it uh, in 308, they just don't make them. Now, Kimber is making a couple new ultralight arms, obviously, you know, Melvin Forbes, he builds an ultralight rifle. But for the average guy to get there, it was almost impossible. So for the last 40 years, people, since they can't meet Cooper's specifications, they just mix and choose and add what they want to suit them. And a good analogy would be, and, and, and when you change those specifications, it's not a scout rifle anymore. You know, the Ruger brought out the Gunsight Scout Rifle, uh, but it failed to meet some of those specifications. Mossberg did the same thing. Uh, Steyr, Jeff Cooper worked with Steyr to design the Scout Rifle, and they swore it was going to make weight, and it still didn't. It came in at a little over seven pounds. So the analogy I was going to talk about, it's kind of like if Richard Mann wrote a recipe for a pie, and he called it a hillbilly pie. And I published that recipe in books and put it on the internet. Then that's what a hillbilly pie would be, right? Now, if Ron Spomer yeah. ate a hillbilly pie and he didn't like it because it didn't have a cherry on top, and he puts a cherry on top of it, it's not a hillbilly pie anymore. It's Ron Spomer. <laughs> You're a stickler. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, right? Right, I got gotcha. you. But but Richard, my question is what. Why the scout rifle? Why does he want to set it up this way? What's its purpose? Well, I, I guess I got sidetracked. I was getting to that. And the reason I kind of got sidetracked is if you read about the scout rifle in magazines or you get on the internet and scout rifle forums, you're going to get all this, yeah. like I said, this can of worms of, well, I want my scout rifle in 6.5 Creedmoor. Okay, fine. But it's not okay. a scout rifle. That, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm getting at? So the reason, gotcha. Cooper, right? You're stickler for. Well, it's it's what he said. He it's, it's his hillbilly pie. It's not right, mine. Right. It's not your work. Um, right. But his concept was he wanted a rifle that was suitable for hunting any animal on earth up to a thousand pounds, which is what ninety nine percent of all the hunting would cover yeah. that. Uh, yeah. And he wanted a, a rifle that would be suitable for somebody operating in a scouting capacity. Uh, like in the old days, uh, a lot of it was based on Frederick Russell Burnham, who was the uh, lead scout during the Boer Wars in South Africa. Burnham was actually an American that went to work for the British military. And mm. pretty story guy, pretty interesting guy. He did a lot of interesting stuff. And I think he was from Arizona where Cooper set up Gunsight Academy. So I think he had a lot of connection to to Burnham and the guy that founded the Boy Scouts, Baden Powell, uh, was good friends of Frederick Russell Burnham, and he based a lot of what he wanted to teach the Boy Scouts through his program on the stuff that Burnham did. So Burnham was an influ- influential guy. Uh, so Cooper wanted the scout rifle. He wanted it to be hunting, a hunting rifle for anything up to 1,000 pounds, but he also wanted it to be suitable for a scout who's out operating along, gathering information, scouting. Uh, He didn't want a battle rifle where you would engage a platoon of enemy soldiers. If you're a scout and you're engaging a platoon of enemy soldiers, you're not a very good scout. 
you know, you, you made mm-hmm. a mistake. Um, so that's kind of, he, he wanted a rifle that he called a general purpose rifle that was not specialized, such as a big game rifle or a varmint rifle or a battle rifle or a deer rifle or an elk rifle. Right. He wanted a general purpose rifle that you could do all of those things with. Maybe so not. What is, Go ahead. What is the advantage of the forward-mounted scope, and what power ranges do you have on it? Cooper wanted a very low power range, two to three power, because what he wanted you to be able to do with that low power scope is make quick snapshots. And I'm okay. sure you, you like jump shooting warthogs in Africa, or maybe even whitetail deer. You snap the gun up, you leave both eyes open, quickly acquire the target, and make the shot. Uh, and the mm-hmm. scout scope works really well for that. Um, I've got three scout rifles sitting here, and they all have variable power scopes on them. Gra- two to Why don't you burst. grab one and show us? For anyone who's watching this on YouTube, they can they can look at it, and we'll describe it for the listeners on the podcast. I'll, okay, I'll so there's... See it. So you this, see, you've got the forward-mounted scope. Yeah, this is a scout rifle based off a new ultralight arms Model 20. It's in 308. You can see here it has the aperture ghost ring rear sight, mm-hmm. front sight, and then the forward-mounted scope. And it has quick detach rings, so you can take it off if you, you know if the scope would break or whatever. Sure. Uh, this is a two to seven burst. If you want to do the snap shooting, you turn it down to two power. Uh, but the the downside to a low power rifle scope, and I'm sure you know this, if you're in a hunting situation, and if you're hunting pronghorn antelope, he's standing out in the middle of a prairie. Two power scope's good to three four hundred yards. Yeah. If he if you're in the woods hunting whitetails, or that pronghorn is moving around some brush where you can't see him, you need more magnification, more resolution to be able to to find him in the scope and make a good shot. And that's the downside of a fixed power, low power scout scope is you lack the resolution to be able to make shots at game animals that are hard to see, such as in the timber or, or mm-hmm. whatever. So that's why I have variable scopes on all my scout rifles. Uh, okay. How's I hunt with them? But that's not, that's not considered a cherry on top of your hillbilly pie then, is it? Well, I think it is. I don't think that's technically <laughs> a scout rifle because – Cooper, and you got to understand, in 1983, you remember the rifle scopes in 1983. Yeah. Uh, it was like a coin flip sometimes, you know? Yeah. Whether they would hold zero or they would break. And Cooper was running the gun sight range, and a lot of people were coming through there with scopes, and he would see them break. And mm-hmm. he felt that the fixed power, low power scope was the best general purpose answer for, that, for the scout rifle. Um, and a lot of people now, you know, they'll, they'll throw red dots on them. Uh, and the other thing that probably deserves mentioning because people argue about it all the time when it comes to a scout rifle is the cartridge choice. He wanted a 308 yeah. Winchester, but he specified specifically that the seven millimeter 08 would suffice in locations where you were prohibited from owning military cartridge. Yes. Well, nowadays, everybody wants to turn their AR-10 into a scout rifle because ARs are the cool thing, right? And I like AR-10s. They're great guns, but there's places you can't own an Mm AR-10. So by the same logic that he was allowing the 7mm 08 because the 308 was prohibited, 
the AR-10 doesn't really qualify because there's places it's prohibited. Yeah. So you're kind of stuck. If you go with Cooper's definition, you're kind of stuck with what he wrote. If you want your hillbilly pie with a cherry on top, you can do anything you want call it a scout rifle. Ruger did, Steyr did, Mossberg did, Savage did, you know, and I've got three of them here that technically don't meet Cooper's definition, but they're pretty much a scout. All right. Now, here's what I'm coming down to. Scout rifle. If I'm a a typical hunter, I'm going to be going out for whitetail. I hope to go out west for elk, or maybe I'm already out west, so I'm going to hunt elk and mule deer and pronghorn and maybe go moose hunting, maybe even run up to Alaska for a bear hunt. Uh, but I want a scout rifle, or do I? What is my advantage having a scout rifle as a pure hunter? I'm not going to be working for the military. I'm not going to go out on an actual scouting mission. I'm a hunter. Is there any advantage in having a scout rifle over a typical? No. So as a hunter, why would I be interested in a scout rifle? And I've asked myself this because I'm really not, and I've never quite understood it. I've never been crazy about the long eye relief scopes. Because of the field of view thing, it just you know, you always look like you're looking at a down a narrow little tunnel or something way out there. You don't get that full field of view feeling or something about it that's a little bit odd. Am I misinterpreting that? No, I, I, I mean, I think the the answer to your question is there is no advantage. If that's what you're going to do with your okay. rifle, the scout rifle is not the best answer. Uh, I've got a new ultralight arms model twenty chambered for the thirty Remington AR. I've used it here for whitetail. I've used it in Africa, taking kudu, warthog. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a typically or standard mount two and a half to eight power rifle scope. And I can shoot it better in any situation than I can any of the scout rifles I have. Uh. That's just me. But I think, I think for the hunter, the scout rifle has no advantage. Now, let's back that up a little bit. If you're strictly a mountain hunter and you want to cut your weight as much as possible, there's a the scout rifle has the advantage there if you can meet that six pound six point six pound weight requirement. Richard, is that six point six full up scope mounted sling? Sling and scope. Sling to scope, but not a full magazine. Nope. But okay. new ultralight arms, cheaper. There's a couple other manufacturers you can get rifles that weigh that, you know, now. Sure. Yeah, I was going to say with the Model 20, you're you're there. I mean, you've got a, bit, a less than five pound rifle to start with. You put on some lightweight aluminum one piece tally rings, uh, two to seven loophole scope or something. Uh, you're under six pounds or right close to it. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the this new ultralight arms scout rifle here, um, it's right at six pounds. It's a half a pound less than what Cooper specified. And I got steel tally rings so does, on it, and I even got a wow, a carry ammo caddy on the side. Um, uh huh. The there is there is one other thing that I like about the forward mounted scope, and if you're here's another scout rifle. This is a custom shop Remington seven hundred. But when you carry a rifle, if you can grab it right here, right at the balance point, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's nice, you know, and it's kind of yeah. hard to wrap your hand around a scope and everything else. So, yeah, I mean, you've got that one right. Yeah, that's kind of handy, but it, it's yeah, not yeah. handier than having a traditionally mounted two and a half or one and a half to five, two and a half to eight. Now you now with these new scopes with these eight X magnification range like the Swarovski, 
one to Crazy. eight. I mean, why would you want to scout rifle? You know, if you're if hunting's all you're going to do. Uh, yeah, right. I've even got a Winchester Model ninety four set up that uh, is pretty darn nice for you know with that forward mounted scope. Or uh, yeah, I'm sorry, forward it's scope. A, yeah, it's got a one to four Leopold standard mount scope on it. Uh, okay. The the idea is a little more romantic than it is practical. You know, with the mm-hmm. scout rifle. Um, if yeah. you were if you were wanting one gun, one rifle that you would last you for the rest of your life, whether you're going to hunt, uh, do scouting, you know, maybe you're in a survival situation, uh, defend your home or something like that, the scout rifle wouldn't be a bad choice because it can do all those mm-hmm. things pretty well. But it's not going to do anything better than a specialized rifle for deer hunting, elk hunting, pronghorn hunting, varmint hunting, bear hunting. Uh, like I said, I think mostly romantic than practical today. Mm-hmm. You know, today we we just don't do things like we did, uh, like Burnham did in Africa in the, the yeah. turn of the last century. You know? Yeah, yeah. I will say one other thing though. That it's kind of unique. If you look at the Steyr, um, the Steyr has a couple other things, and it has a built-in bipod. That's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, you can't you can't argue with the that. It's not the greatest bipod in the world, but it's a bipod, and it also has the ability to store an extra magazine in the buttstock here. Yep. Yeah, that's some real practical stuff. And I used one of those on a hunt in Argentina several years ago. In it was in a 308, believe it or not, Richard. I actually shot something with a 308, red yeah. stag and some hogs. Yeah, it worked. I'll be darned. <laughs> now, speaking of having to stick with a, a 308 to really fit your hillbilly pie here on Cooper's idea, and a lot of folks are going to say, now, why don't I use a 6.5 Creed more? And that would be my argument is since I'm not a huge fan of the 308, and I know that with the right bullets and the right loads, a 6.5 Creedmoor, even though it's smaller, can deliver an effective projectile with less drop, less deflection in the wind, and more retained energy downrange. So what do you think of the argument for guys who say, look, I want a better all-around hunting rifle than a something chambered in the 308 Winchester, I'm going to go with the 6.5 Creedmoor. Are they off base? Um, I think if you want a scout rifle, the 308 is the, the obvious answer because of what it can do and the fact that a scout rifle is not a long-range weapon. It's a, a muzzle to 400-yard weapon. And at that distance, the only real advantage the Creedmoor is going to give you is less recoil. Uh, maybe just yeah. a little less drop, but, I mean, you run the numbers, they're pretty darn close out to four or 500 yards. And then that's where the Creedmoor really starts pulling away. Yeah. And the other thing with the 308 from a survival rifle standpoint is ammunition availability. If you're operating around any NATO forces anywhere, you're going to have availability to 308 ammo. You're not going to have any 6.5 Creedmoor. Yeah. For a straight up hunting gun, if you're going to stem the ranges past, uh, Four or five hundred yards, the Creedmoor's got an edge. Right. You know? Yeah. Though I got to tell you, Ron, I've shot some big critters with a Creedmoor and it worked. I, I took it to uh, Newfoundland and shot a bear, a caribou, and a moose all within a week. And 
Yeah. I, admit, I didn't shoot all that good. And that usually what matters yeah. more than you saying. But yeah, yeah, you got that right. Overall, I don't know that I would rate the Creedmoor as effective as a 308. Why do you say that? Have you just seen my, just based on my experience in the field? Do you, do you do you see that the 308 kills more efficiently, quicker, harder? What's going on? That that's all that's all that I've seen. Is the animals I've shot with the 308 tend to quit being quit breathing sooner and quit running sooner than animals that I've shot with Creedmoor. But mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking probably. I probably shot more than 100 big game animals with the 308 probably 30 with the Creedmoor. So I don't even, I think you'd have to shoot thousands to make that, to make a true, to have enough data to support that conclusion. And, and right. like I said, shot placement, the difference in an inch in shot placement can mean the difference in an animal running 50 and 200 yards. You know that you just, you can't, yeah, never you know, it's unpredictable. Yeah. And then bullet construction too. Too many people don't consider bullet construction. And I don't know, but I'm sure you're the same way as I am. It's all about the bullet. We argue endlessly about the cartridge. And then so many guys will just run down to the store and buy the cheapest ammo they could find with some kind of a hunting bullet in it that they don't really understand. And they end up with a fairly simple, frangible cup and core bullet that doesn't necessarily penetrate as well. You could easily have a 308 load with the wrong bullet, that doesn't work nearly as well as a 6.5 Creedmoor with the right bullet. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you, you know, you look at the 308 Winchester, a lot of people say, well, I'll just keep my 30 out 6. It's, it's better. Well, it's about 50 yards better. They're shooting the same mm-hmm. bullet. You know, but you got about right. 50 yards more effective range with this 30 out 6, depending on the load and the bullet, obviously. But uh, the bullet is. Pretty- and I don't know that it's even that much. I don't know that's even 50 yards. I think you're closer to 25 yards difference. Yeah. I mean, and then and then you've got the variations in different rifles. You know, I've seen 308 Winchesters. One will shoot 100 feet per second faster than another with the same barrel length and the same load. So, Yeah, it, you get that with any cartridge. You know, too many people will look on the back and it says, well, it says right here at the velocity is 2,960 feet per second. That must be what I'm getting. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, I don't know. No. I bet I could count on my, I got 10 fingers. I bet I could count on them the number of times that I've seen a factory rifle outperform advertised ballistic. It just, it's rare. Yeah, it is. I've seen it happen a few times. I was pretty impressed a couple of years ago. I was shooting a, there were six or seven um, Browning and Winchester rifles, all chambered for that new 6.8 Western cartridge. Yep. And it was rated, I think it was rated for the bullet we were shooting, 2,832 feet per second or something. Every one of those rifles was delivering ballistics within about 5 to 10 feet per second of what was advertised on that box. That was the first time I'd ever seen anything close to that sort of consistency out of factory ammunition and factory rifles. Wouldn't you agree, unless you're dealing with really short barrels, would you say that usually factory ammo is advertised ballistics is about 60 to 30 to 60 feet per second faster. Oh yeah. Yeah. I kind of always rounded it off at a hundred, but yeah. 50 to 50 to a hundred somewhere in there is what I've seen. Yeah. You bet. And the inconsistency from load to load, you, you shoot one time and the next shot you get a hundred feet per second faster than your first one. 
Yep. You don't have your standard deviations are pretty far off on some of that factory stuff. But then this is a, again, an argument for hand loaders. You know, it's like, why should I hand load? I can get all the factory and the ammunition I want. And it's got my favorite bullet on it now. And it's pretty consistent. Yeah. But if you really want consistency, you probably need to be hand loading because the factory ammo is produced by a machine and clankety, clankety, clank. They run on down the line. They can only come about so precise and then it has to fit everybody's rifle. So you're really never going to get exactly the best loads from a factory. You well, might get lucky and, and yeah, hit it. I think a lot of people don't understand. They think you got to be an expert hand loader to get there, but you don't. I mean, even a novice hand loader can make, ammunition that's more consistent than factory generally speaking i mean there's some factory loads that are pretty amazing but just generally yeah. speaking it's pretty easy to hand load good ammo yeah now do you also think and i've noticed this is that some cartridges are loaded by the factories more precisely than others and i'm thinking 6.5 creedmoor and 308 winchester primarily because so many people use them for target shooting match grade stuff I think that's yeah. an intentional process. I think there's some things that I think there's some other things that come into effect. Anytime a new cartridge is introduced, all the tooling materials that make the chambers, the chamber reamers, that make the brass, mm -hmm. the bullet, everything is new. So you're getting pristine. It's it's producing pristine product. Uh, whereas, like with an older cartridges. You know, the, the manufacturer may run the reamers or the dies or whatever until they're just all at the, at the edge of spec, and then they replace them. So I think any time a new cartridge comes out, for a while, it's going to perform very well until those mm -hmm. tools that are making it begin to wear, you know. That's an that's an interesting point. Yeah, the 6.5, I i don't know how many of those I've tested and shot, and I've never shot one that was what I would call a junker. You know, yeah. Mossberg, uh, the one I took to Newfoundland was a Mossberg. And I know they're not listed or considered the greatest rifles in the world, but that was a one-inch rifle for 600 yeah. bucks. You know? That's hard to argue against, Six, a one-inch rifle for 600 bucks. Oh, absolutely. And compare that to what we were trying to come up with about 30 years ago. Remember trying to find a rifle that would shoot minute of angle 30 years ago? Wow. I mean, all the stuff you did to the rifle, you'd recrown it, you'd bed it, you'd shim it. You'd yep. And half the time, the problem might have been that the rifle scopes we were using just wasn't capable of holding a zero that good. <laughs> oh, boy. That's a, that's a good point. You know, I will often tell folks who ask me, what can I do to get my rifle to shoot better? I always tell them, check your scope. Yep. And it's like, no, no, it's the rifle that's not shooting. No, your scope is what's zeroed for sighting that rifle, and your scope might not be precise. It might be woggling, wiggling a little bit. The spring might be weak. There are a lot of things going on in that scope that might be your problem. Switch scopes, and suddenly your rifle's there. Yeah, and even the scope mounts. You know, Melvin Forbes at New Ultralight Arms told me years ago, and he don't offer an accuracy guarantee, but you know all his rifles shoot. I mean, they're all yes. one inch or better, typically with good ammo. And he mm -hmm. said a lot of people would buy the rifle and call him and say, this rifle don't shoot. And he said, well, send it back. And he said they would send it back with either a junk scope on it. Or at that time, the Melvin uh, 20 years ago, didn't have a lot of faith in the European optic. And he would mm -hmm. pop the, uh, the scope they had on it off, put a Leopold on it, shoot a little group, send it back to them, you know, but yeah. the, the rifle scopes today are, I mean, they're amazing. They're absolutely amazing. 
They absolutely are. And the crazy thing is all the recoil that they take and they can still do it. You know, you expect them to be waterproof, precise. You turn your power up and down. You expect a bullet to go to the same spot. Nothing moves in there. The precision with which those instruments are put together is really impressive. Yeah, it's it's nuts. And the it's durability, nuts. too. It's Yeah. I, th- I think we're spoiled these days, Richard. Shooters and hunters are really spoiled. And the crazy thing is, as good as the equipment is now, we are always trying to make it better. Yeah, just look at the advancements we see in bullets almost every year. You know, whether it's changing the, like Hornady with the ELDX bullets, they, they changed that OJAV to more of a seeking OJAV to give you better BC. Mm-hmm. And then they put that heat yeah. shield tip on it that helps eliminate what they call bullet tip deformation during the heat as the bullet's flying down range to give you a more consistent BC from the muzzle to target. And then look at the bonding, all the new bonding uh, types of bonding bullets. Were, you know, the AccuBond, uh, then the, the what's the, the Trophy Bonded? Do you remember the original Trophy Bonded bullets? Yeah, Trophy Bonded Bear Claw. Yeah, I had some of those for a two two three, and I struggled to get them to shoot inside two inches. Now, they were lethal. They were wonderful bullets. But now, since Federal bought trophy bonded they've refined that bullet so it's just as lethal as it was but now it even shoots better you know yeah more accurate yeah no that's that's been a great great bullet for a long time what i'm really impressed with are the advancements in copper bullets copper bullets are making a lot of significant advances too richard don't you think yeah absolutely you know the those first x bullets a lot of people found that their rifles didn't like them. They didn't shoot real well. Yeah. You know? And then when right. they transitioned to that TSX with the, the grooves, uh, they, they tend to yeah. shoot very well in, in most any gun. now. Yeah. I found it to be incredibly accurate. And now there are so many other brands coming out with essentially copycat bullets, but you know, it's like mandatory in some places to use non-toxic bullets, no lead. So you have to pretty much run with the copper. So almost every manufacturer offers some kind of a copper bullet. And I think the competition is heating up and we are getting some spectacularly effective bullets. I just played around with some hammer bullets last fall and was really impressed. I mean, they're turning each one of them on a on a lathe, they're machine-turned bullets, and they're extremely precise. You look at the bullet itself, and it's just almost a piece of art. It's so well-built and so consistent and so polished, and and the accuracy was just outstanding. You just didn't expect that from a copper bullet. Have you had any experience with the Control Chaos bullet from Lehigh? No, I was talking to Lehigh a few years ago before the COVID crap hit, and you could still get out to some of these conventions and stuff. And uh, it was sounding pretty exciting, but then I kind of lost track of them. So they've got it out well, now, huh? Well, uh, Wilson Combat, Bill Wilson bought Lehigh Defense, and and he moved oh. the whole operation. Uh, but that controlled chaos bullet, you know, the, the beautiful part that people like about monumental bullets or all copper bullets is they always open up, they flower up, pretty and they retain all their weight so they penetrate deep Um, the downside that i've found is tissue damage wise they're not quite as effective as a cup and core or a bonded bullet but that chaos bullet the front of that bullet it's much like it's like a monometal bullet of a nozzle partition the front of that bullet turns into shrapnel when it impacts so it just Mm -hmm. blows into a bunch of chunks of copper and that spreads out through the animal but the shank of the bullet 
continues to penetrate and tremendously deep sure. because it's caliber and diameter. Uh, when my son was 17, he shot his buffalo in Africa with a 375 using a, a chaos bullet. And I think it ran 22 yards, I think, is what how far it ran. Uh, they're, they're pretty amazing bullets. Yeah, I'm starting to see that a lot. You know, there's a, a whole bunch of developments in copper bullets. We might want to go into that someday on another show. We could really dive into it. Maybe we could do a, a whole program just on different bullets that we found to be effective for hunting because things are changing rapidly in that aspect of hunting and shooting. And I think that's probably the most important one. Well, well Richard, you, know, you probably have to go. F- you you know that I'm a bullet geek. You remember the bullet test tube from 2005. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever happened to that bullet test tube? That thing was kind of fun, but it disappeared. The the guy that owned it just said he didn't want to mess with it no more. Huh. And you didn't pick it up, huh? Well, I'm, I am a poor hillbilly, Ron. <laughs> You'll go to the hillbilly routine again. <laughs> Use it when it works. <laughs> poor hillbilly with three kids, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, Richard, listen, um, I'm going to let you go. I think you probably need to feed your dogs and your hound dogs enough so they can go mark some pups before the next year comes around. I really well, listen, appreciate I, you. I want to, while you're on here, I want to thank you publicly for all the help you've given me over the last 20 some years in writing and photography. And that's one of the beautiful things about hunters and gun owners is they're always eager to help somebody. And without the, I guess some of the mentoring I'd re- received from you, if I hadn't had that, I'd probably still be chasing bad guys. So thanks, Ron. <laughs> well, you're quite welcome, Richard. I don't know that I've done anything significant to help you out, but any anything I can do, I'm more than happy to do it for you. And I know you do the same thing for me. Uh, you have helped me out with a lot of different projects and your knowledge and in different avenues that I'm not all that up to date on it really helps out yeah it's, it is really remarkable the way we hunters and hand loaders and shooters will share useful information to help each other out it's quite a refreshing industry in which to be involved so thanks for joining us in this podcast richard and if people want to find you and your books and all where do they go uh emptycases.com empty-cases.com empty dash cases.com will get you to his website it's a great website he has a lot of books on there the man knows his guns and his ammo and his scopes and every other aspect of shooting and hunting so you might want to check him out have you got a youtube channel i do i do r-a-m-w-v there's links on the uh, website for instagram facebook youtube twitter all that stuff all the usual stuff all right you're gonna get get back west here and visit us sometime I hope to come out and see your fancy ranch out there that's all solar-powered. Yeah, we're all the latest and greatest here. When you get offline, you're living off the grid completely. There's all sorts of wonderful things that come come your way, Um, especially friends with uh, shovels and wrenches and hammers and tools can help fix things like the fence. So, yeah, come on out. Bring some muscle. Bring that along with you. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Thanks so much for being with us, Richard. Really appreciate it. Hey, folks. That's another episode here. I hope you enjoyed Richard. The the guy really knows his stuff, and he's a straight shooter. And I I think we find that a lot in our industry. And I really appreciate his helping out here. And uh, maybe next time he and I will get deeper into bullets because Richard has done a lot of research in bullets. Maybe we'll talk about that bullet test tube he was working with for a while. It was a great way to, to test bullet expansion and terminal performance. 
So uh, until the next time, this is Ron Spomer on RSO Podcast. Thanking you for watching. You can catch us on our other YouTube channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors, where we dive into depth on bullets and cartridges and ballistics and all that fun stuff. Uh, website is ronspomeroutdoors.com, and you can also jump on the television stationaire, rsotv.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Ron Spomer signing off. Hunt honest and shoot straight. where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.